You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 60 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we are taking a little delve into the archives, going back in time uh, to focus on the Malin Review. What is the Malin Review? I hear you ask. It was an independent review uh, mandated by the government in 2006-2007 to essentially examine the sport and ask why is basketball not reaching this magical potential that so many people have spoken about for so many years, which is still spoken about to this day. Um, So I was rereading it. It's actually available online. I'll put it in the show notes, but it's available on the Hoops Fix SlideShare account. And I noticed on the panel, uh, the one basketball name that was on the panel um, was Martin Henlon. So I reached out to him, asked him a few questions about it, uh, and then actually just said, oh, well, do you fancy coming on a podcast to kind of dissect it and talk about it in more detail? Because I'd love to learn a, learn a little bit more. So that's exactly what we did. I uh, went for an hour and 40 um, speaking uh, about the methodology, uh, why it came about, uh, why it was the third review done in the space of about five or six years of the sport. And unfortunately, why... Basically, no action was taken uh, on the uh, results and the findings of the review. It's pretty depressing, to be honest. Um, but it proved to be a very interesting conversation. I think uh, it's worth everyone listening to, and it's worth reading the report. Um, definitely go and check it out and have a read. I'll also include uh, links to Terry Donovan, who was the chair of Basketball England, um, the annual report that Basketball England did, which called England Basketball at the time. Uh, his response to the review, um, he wrote a two-page sort of response uh, to open the annual report. And you can kind of see the general stance that the Federation was was taking to seeing um, the Madden review. So, yeah, we spoke about that. And then the other thing we, we spoke about was the Players Association. There's obviously been speak about... It's been talk about a players' association for years. Uh, no one has been d- doing it or has done it um, to bring it back. Uh, and Martin was involved with the formation of the first players' association in the 90s. So I wanted to pick his brain on that as well. And hopefully uh, a player might be listening to this and might take it upon themselves to actually um, take some action and make it happen because I do think it's something that's long overdue and, as many people have said, uh, is needed to help push the sport forward and drive uh, the sport forward, especially from, from a player's standpoint, especially with everything that's going on with COVID at the moment uh, and the likelihood of uh, reduced player salaries and budgets uh, across the league. So before we get into this show, uh, as always, I do have to give a mention to our Patreon account. Please go check out patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. There you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you'd like to help support the work that we are doing. It costs the price of a cup of coffee, $3 a month it starts at, uh, or you can give much more than that, obviously, if you want to. And that goes to funding uh, the work that we do Um this equipment, this time, uh, all of this stuff is not possible without uh, our audience, the people that are, are watching, listening, reading, um, supporting us. So please go and check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, please leave a comment below. Let me know what you think. Uh, would you like to see a players association? Um, what do you think of the Madden Report? And also, uh, if you're listening on iTunes, uh, please take two seconds, stop what you're doing right now, uh, scroll onto your, your, your podcast player, give us a, a rating and a review. I do have to give a quick shout out to Dean Blake, who was our most uh, recent review, which took us to, to uh, it was the 76th rating and review that we've had. And he said, love this podcast, love to hear the history of the game and insights from various, various guests. Glad the podcast is back and long may it continue. Thank you very much, Dean. Um, if anyone else is listening and want to take two seconds of their day to give us a rank review, it would be much appreciated. Anyway, this is a very long intro for compared to what I normally do, so I'm going to stop right there. Um, here is this week's show with me and Martin Henlon. 
Martin, welcome back, part two. It's taken us a little while, three three years later, I think, since our, since our first one, but but welcome back to the show. How many part twos have you got? Am I in, I'm in elite company. Uh, you are the second, I think, the first, yeah, the only person that has done two was Kieran Achara, so... You are in elite, oh, elite wow. company right now. Okay. Um, I feel, and I'm glad it's, it's big men as well. Normally, you suck up the point guards. So I'm, <laughs> I feel like you could be the one that changes the uh, the future of basketball. Yes, I think one of the things I, I end up saying a lot at the end of podcasts is because uh, I always find the conversation so interesting that I always end it with, oh, we've got to do a part two sometime. And so I, I think I've done part two invitations for nearly everybody, but then I never actually end up getting around to having them back on as a part two. Um, but here we are anyway, yeah. so... I'm glad we've we've managed to make it happen. So um, yeah, like I was, we obviously had an email exchange yesterday. I, I kind of get down these little rabbit holes sometimes um, and get obsessed with certain topics and then start digging up all sorts of information. Um, and my my recent uh, sort of topic of interest was the Malin uh, report, Malin review. Um, and I was surprised to see your name there as someone that was involved with it. So I thought we need to have a quick chat. Um, and discuss exactly what it was, what happened with it, and um, kind of what was the outcome and the result from it. Because I feel like reading it and reading the recommendations, I don't feel like a lot of stuff was actually actioned. So I, I guess um, going to the the sort of first time you heard about it, uh, kind of how how did it all come about? Um, who were you contacted by, and kind of why do you think that it was it was called upon to be done? Uh, well. Um... The sport, as you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into the you know the, the the reason why the sport of basketball was in disarray. I mean, you must have done a thousand podcasts uh, talking about the sort of issues that still remain today. But back then, um, 2005, um, when um, you know London was going through the bid process um, for the Olympic Games. I was engaged with um, UK Sport, BO, British Olympic Association, and several other um, bodies within sport around re-establishing British basketball. Um, at, the mo- at the time, I was working at a network called UK TV, um, looking to bring sport into the portfolio. Um, and so then there was a lot of infighting that was going on within the world of basketball. Um, and in my conversation, well, it must have been Sport England who who initiated the review Yeah. Um, and they said, look, we'd like to have somebody from within the sport involved with the review. You have no um, affiliation within the sport. Would you be interested in getting involved? And I just said yes. And it was a fascinating journey that um, uh, I, well, it was certainly worth the experience. and uh, sad to say that the you know the reaction from within the sport itself was exactly what I anticipated, but uh, um, you know it was it was something I was proud to be a part of, and I still stand by the recommendations that we that we and the conclusions that we came to. It took several months in the end, and it got held up for uh, a couple of reasons because we needed um, uh, agreements from FIBA on a couple of points and so on. But you know it was, it was a pretty intense six months period. So the uh, it was called the Malin Report because the guy that was sort of, I guess, the chair of it, the guy heading up was T- Tony Malin. Uh, what was his background and kind of, do you know why he was particularly called upon to be the Tony person that was Malin doing it? Tony Malin was the, I mean, I get this job to, uh, title correct, but he was managing director or chairman of a uh, um, uh, an investment bank star capital 
like a, a pension fund. Um, and he was heavily involved with British rowing um, across their sponsorship from Scandia, I believe. At the time, there was a, uh, um, there were, there were associations with several sports and they were trying to get basketball one where they'd have a brand that just associated directly with a sport. I remember Scandia and rowing and that's where Tony got involved. Um, there was a few other delegates one was, um, I've forgotten his last name, um, very high profile in uh, HR. Um, he's got a, a big global firm there based out of New York. And there was another guy from Rothschild's bank. Um, so these were people that were, um, they were not specific to basketball, but they had done this kind of work at the corporate level as well as at the sporting level. And there were a couple of um consultants that UK Sport had used um, before, I think Neil Tennyson and John, I've forgotten his last name, um, that had been involved with um, helping sports rebuild structures and set structures up. And then I was the final part of the puzzle as a somebody who had expertise from within the world of basketball, but no affiliation to that day because I'd been retired for two years by then. Yeah, so, so I've got the list of the people that were... Um involved in the, in the review. So it was Paul Buxton, who was the performance program coordinator for UK Sport. Okay, and then you got Perry Crimmins, project manager of Sport England, John Eady, managing director of Knight, Kavanagh and Page. Um, Trudy Else, client manager of Sport England, obviously yourself. Um, David Henwood, management consultant, ex-deputy CEO of Gloucester Rugby Club. Uh, obviously Tony Mallon. Uh, Stephen Redwood, president and CEO of Mercer Data Consulting. Um, Michael Sorkin, Vice Chairman from Rothschild and Sons, uh, Dr. Neil Tunneycliffe, Principal Wharton Consulting, former CEO of Rugby Football League. And then the other name that stuck out to me was Lisa, Ra Lisa Wainwright, who was the Head of National Sport for Sport England, who obviously became a CEO of uh, British Basketball Federation in, in recent years. Yes, exactly. Um, so it was, it was, a, it was a, obviously an impressive, impressive group uh, of people. Now, one of the things we discussed in the, in our email exchange was that actually before the Mallon review, there had been two other reviews in the previous, I think, five or six years. I think it was one in 2002 and one in 2004. It was, it was something around then. Do you know, like, uh, kind of what the other two reviews were? Was, was that led by, um, you know, the government, Sporting England, or being requested by Sporting England, the government, uh, who was involved and kind of what the findings were and why, after having two in the last, you know, five, six years, there was then a need for yet another one, you know, within the space of, well, you've got like three reviews within six years. I believe that if there is, and, and I'm sure one of your podcast listeners will maybe prove me wrong, basketball is the only sport to have had three fundamental reviews done of it. Um, the two previous uh, reviews had made recommendations that had not been actioned on. Um, the Genesis review, which is the one immediately before the one I was involved in, I was unaware of. I mean, I was playing overseas when that one happened. So it was. Um, but uh, I think Simon Kirkland was the CEO of, of England basketball back then. I don't know if it was EBBA or what its name was. Um, and the fallout from the findings of that review was that effectively everybody got thrown out. I mean, the, the, the whole, um, you know, they changed all of the executive of basketball England, but I don't think they actually changed any of the things that they were seeking to achieve. They just changed some targets. And I think where where the Malin review came into play was there was two factors. 
One was the Olympic Games were coming um, and basketball, you know, what we, we didn't even have a British basketball team at that time. So what are we going to do about that? And that's how I so it was Paul that, I, that was my sort of who asked me to join the, the panel. Um, but and also the, the, the infighting within basketball had never been uh, more fierce. You know, the, the uh, you know, is it going to be run by the BBL? Is it, is it Basketball England? Um, this whole sport plan was the new scheme that Sport England had for funding sports. And so they issued um, uh, funding to a sport on the basis of a four year plan. Um, and Basketball England needed one doing and doing properly. Um, and now you've mentioned all, some of the names. I mean, going, this is 13 years ago now. It's not something that's at the front of my, my uh, memory <laughs> in the banks. But uh, the, the names from the, uh, the non-sports people are impressive enough. Um, but, you know, the, you mentioned the likes of Lisa um, Perry um, and Trudy. You know, that shows that Sport England took this with a huge, very seriously, um, and they were really concerned about the situation for the sport because they, the facts stood out. Here was a sport that delivered um, in hard-to-reach um, parts of the country in huge numbers and yet wasn't a success structurally. Yeah. So yeah, what yeah. do we need to do? How do we, how do we fix this? And that was the, sort of like the fundamental question because, you know, we've got the Olympics coming up in seven years' time. It's going to be coming to London and this is one of the showcase sports, if not the showcase team sport, um, and we need to be a part of that part. So when you first all came together, what was the process for sort of working out the methodology of how you were actually going to go and, you know, collect this data, get this insight um, to then be able to actually make your recommendations uh, for, for the review? Again, as I said, I'm, I'm doing this from memory. Um, but the process was very much we need to look as you same as you'd review any other sporting landscape. What is the environment now? How does the sport run? How is it put together? What are the, the key who are the key stakeholders within the sport, both domestically and internationally on the global scale? And then looking from that, where are the, the, the points of weakness? Where are the points that need to be addressed? Um, and then when you start thinking about recommendations, you consider that against other sports domestically that have had great success. Because, and that was something that we, we had to discuss early on um, was, well, do we just find out what, how basketball is run in Serbia and just copy that? And for obvious reasons, no, that wasn't the case. We tried to look at sports that had had success in the UK um, that we could learn from or the sport could learn from. And then ultimately tried to make recommendations for Sport England um, that ultimately had the only um, uh, power to wield over over England basketball at the time, um, which because they were the funding partner, so they could withhold funding until you implicate some of these uh, recommendations. So, but that wasn't, you know, what they did with the recommendations was not the focus of what we were seeking to achieve. What we wanted to do was to Give a review of what the sport is, how it looked, how it operated, um, tell some of the success stories, identify some of the areas of weakness, and then identify possible solutions for how the sport could be put into, into a better um, footing and have a better foundation for the future. So the other thing that struck me, aside from those original names um, that we spoke about that were, were involved, is that then 
at the in the glossary in the introduction um there's a list of endorsements and that that list of endorsements from various people is almost like a who's who of not only uh performance basketball but also performance sport in the uk so you've got you know quotes from uh luol deng pops mensah bonsu uh david stern um geordie bertomo from the euro ceo of the euro league uh and then of course uh, jenny price ceo of sporting at the time um liz nicole director of performance from uk sport Derek Matt, the chairman of Sport England, it feels like everyone outside of basketball, the the well, the sort of the internal basketball community uh, in the UK, um, was very much supportive of this and backing this and putting their name to it and saying, you know, we stand by this. We believe that the recommendations and the review uh, are what is needed to to grow the sport and and push the sport forward. Um, do you think? That's a case. Do you remember kind of like the reception from you know the likes of sort of the people that I've just named when they when they read the review and kind of what the the perception from outside of the sport was when you completed it? Yeah, that, that, as I said, the the um, the process was thorough, um, and and bear in mind the only person in the room who knew anything about basketball was me. You know, so the so we the interview with Patrick Bauman that was not conducted by me. That was Michael Sorkin, Stephen Redwood, Tony Mallon, non-sporting people going to talk to Patrick Bauman about what FIBA's position was and FIBA's relationship was with basketball in Great Britain. I think at the time there was a BBF, it was a British Basketball Federation, and there was a Basketball England. And there was an argument about who was being recognized by FIBA and not recognized by FIBA and how the sport was going to be delivered and how were you going to have a GB team. And so they had they met with Patrick Bauman from FIBA, they, you know, David Stern. They went to the very top of the NBA. What's the NBA's take on basketball in Britain? Trying to get best um, uh, examples of, of best practice. And you're right. You know, we, we got the endorsements from within sport. It was the only group who did not embrace the reviews, the outcome of that um, review was England basketball. Mm. It's crazy. So, so I, from, I, like I said, I, I did have a quick read uh, to f- refresh my memory before we jumped on the call. Um, so my understanding is over 500 people were consulted. 400 of those were, were an online survey. So a website was set up, which I managed to dug up. I, dig up, I dug up in the uh, sort of online archives in the Wayback Machine to have a look at it. Um, so there was a survey uh, that was done, which had, you know, 400 people filled out. And then you did a, a sort of, I guess, a bunch of uh, individual interviews. And then it was a case of collating that data uh, into a report to create the review. So the five key recommendations um that came out, this is the high level, it went way more granular than this, but the, the five sort of high level key recommendations were appoint a high caliber chairperson, reform the governing body, provide sufficient funding, grow sustainable grassroots participation, develop world-class British teams. When you look at that now, um, and you look at where we are now, do you feel like a lot of that still stands today? Do you feel like a lot of those recommendations were implemented in any type of way? Uh, or do you feel like we're still very much in the same place? Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, Sam, that the, the key finding um, that was always going to be difficult to uh, and was ultimately rejected soundly by the sport itself was re- reforming the governing body. Um, because that what... The key thing we realized was the way the sport had been run 
there was just no foundation for it to actually improve to the levels it wanted to do. And that's why the recommendation was to build, when we say reform, the idea was to um, set up an entirely new basketball England, a new structure with a strong, and the reason why the strong chairperson was the first thing to have in place was they said, we have to have somebody who can drive this through. And so the existing basketball England would run in parallel and then you would integrate um, some of the existing roles would come across, would move over. And of course, yes, some would have moved out. Um, and then once you've got a, a governing body that was fit for purpose, that was the, uh, the cliche of the day back then. I think nowadays we pivot. Um, but when, once the governing body was fit for purpose, you could justify getting more funding which would help you to develop world-class programs and ultimately have world-class teams on the on the uh, on the big stage. Participation was never a problem, so that was the thing. We said, well, "Hold up, we've got this great pipeline of kids, and then they disappear." So, what? Do we, how do we address this? That was the, the, the sort of conversation that we were having, um, and it just there wasn't uh, the the, um, the governing body at the time. You know, they would have an annual general at the AGM, and they'd have like four people turn up. You know, there was no dialogue between the governing body and the actual sport itself. Yeah. You know, the people yeah. within the sport, the actual people driving it. We identified several, what I call, um, pockets of success. Um, the, uh, the the junior program at, uh, in Easting, was it, um, oh, was it Ken Charles's ju kids, the, the junior program? Namo's program. Um, Midnight Madness. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Midnight yeah. Madness. Nothing to do with Basketball England. How on earth, you know, it just didn't, didn't add up. And then there was all these, it was like herding cats. You know, John and Mitch had a great idea, you know, to build dedicated basketball centers in the country. Terrific idea, but never really embraced by the governing body because they didn't want his name on it. I, I mean, I, the, the motivation, we don't know. Um, so that the big one, the big one that everything tripped over on was the ref reformation of the governing body. Because, and well, we know we into, so Basketball England came to, to Sport England um, and we had a long session with Keith uh, and his key officers, Keith Mayer, who was the CEO at the time, um, uh, in London. Um, and we know for a fact that, you know, he went back to Sheffield or Leeds, wherever they were, the following day and just basically told all his staff that we were trying to fire everybody, which was not the case because we didn't have the power to do it. What we said was that role isn't right. This is this is that. The, the, the way leagues are run, this is the optimum way that it's done by the FA. So that's how that would be in this new environment. That didn't mean to say the league's manager needed to go. It just meant that they had to do it, change the way they did it. So it was the, uh, the structure that was at fault, not necessarily the people. But ultimately, the sport itself was very well aware that there was no authority from that review panel, and they'd been through it with Genesis a few years before. Um, and to quote, I remember Keith saying it clear as a bell, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. We will stick this out for the long haul. And so they did. Was was there any sort of reaction from the players, the clubs on the ground when the review came out? Um, if you remember at all, like, you know, were people glad that it had been done and then thinking that widespread change was going to start happening uh, or was do you think the, the clubs and the players actually didn't really know what was going on and weren't really aware of it there was general optimism but the excitement the real buzz sam was very much around 
the Olympics coming. That's, you know, everything was coming. You know, every, every conversation started with, well, when the Olympics comes here, uh, you know, this will happen and that will happen. Um, you know, I, I remember, uh, I'm sure it was after the review had happened, um, a meeting with some of the, the high-profile players. I remember Andrew Sullivan came uh, to UK TV and we sat there and we were talking about what the prospects were for that team and where they wanted to go. And, uh, and they were positive. They were buoyant. You know, my, my, my sort of um, scepticism was built around what I experienced myself in 1988. Um, you know, when we were the, the last time we competed in, well, 92, we competed in the, the Olympic uh, qualifiers. But there was a lot of optimism that now is the chance, you know, but the sport has, the governing body has to change to accommodate the, uh, the, uh, the growth potential of this sport. So, yes, it was warmly welcomed, but I, I would imagine that at the, you know, at the BBL level, for example, it didn't impact on any of them. So, of course, they would endorse it. Mm. You know, yeah, it's mm -hmm. great, you know, because at the time, BBL and, sport and Basketball England were fighting like cats and dogs. I'm not to say that that's still the case. I don't know. I've not been involved for a long time. The players that we spoke to, I mean, you've got it in writing there. Luol Deng has proven himself to be a, a, a canny diplomat, and he would not put his name to something he did not believe in. Yeah. So, in the, yeah. it's, you know, you've got it documented there, and it, it's very... Simple language as well. You say it goes into quite heavy detail, but it's very simple. Five very straightforward recommendations. Now, looking back on the results of 2012, I don't necessarily just mean on the court, but obviously from a legacy standpoint and the impact it's had, uh, you as an observer, um, you know, what would you say about the, the basketball legacy from the Olympics and um, what's kind of happened or not happened since? Huge opportunity missed. It's um, it's almost um, the fact that we don't have a documented legacy it speaks realms. You know, it speaks volumes. You know, the, the efforts of the players is not to be questioned whatsoever. Every player that put on the Great Britain jersey has represented to the best of their ability, but they've not. It's the same issues we've got. The support off the court has not been done properly, um, you know. And in the run-up to 2012, nobody looking now would criticise, you know, Chris Finch and Nick Nurse as coaches. But you know, other people that were involved that got on the uh, that were just fighting for a, a, a place on the bench instead of a physio. That sort of narrative is something that's been around for 30, 40 years within the sport, and the fact that that. At the, the, the greatest um, showcase on earth, we still couldn't come together and deliver as a, a, a one sport family, I find incredibly disappointing. Uh, you know, and, and, and to be fair, a couple of years after the, the, you know, the games were done, you know, when the funding issues came back up, is because UK Sports said, well, look, what else can we do? We gave you nine million quid, nine million pounds went into that British basketball team, you know, and the result was one solitary win. Close misses don't count in basketball. You know, that's, and, and if you ask Luol or Pops or any other player on that team, they're, oh man, we got within one point of this one. They'll talk about the game they won when they blew out China. You know, yeah. the, the close misses, nothing. We needed to have success. And it was, uh, they threw a whole bunch of money at programs, 
but they also threw a whole bunch of money at having um, board meetings in Orlando at the All-Star game. What the hell they need to do that? You know, the Nigerians weren't doing that. <laughs> it's that, you know, Finland wasn't doing that. And, 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 you know, you look so many years on, Finland were at the games. Finland is now still a Group A team. Where are we? In Finland, in basketball, come on. You can't tell me we've got the same talent, that, that, that they've got the same talent as us. It's funny. One of the uh, sections in, in the Manning Review, which almost has proven to be prophetic, uh, when we're talking about the British Basketball Federation. So I'm not quite sure what um what the order of events was but the manner of you essentially recommends um having the bbf as a sort of separate subsidiary to focus on the elite teams um but it's it's already been set up so i don't know whether it's it's already been set up before the review was released and it's endorsing it and saying this is the the correct route to go but when it's uh, when it's talking about the the british basketball federation um it literally says uh, we must ensure that the NGB and the elite basketball agenda remain firmly aligned. If re- recognised, the BBF must agree how the performance function is to be managed. Um, UK sport will set out its requirements in this respect along the lines of the template agreed with other British sports that predominantly compete at home nation level, such as hockey, badminton, table tennis, volleyball and uh, boxing. Then the... the uh, the two. Then it says, if if and when the BBF is recognised by the sports council as the body with responsibility for overseeing elite performance basketball, it is recommended that it should delegate responsibility for operational management the GB elite performance basketball function to the NGB via via a service level agreement. Uh, in the interim, in order to ensure effective working practices and communication, the NGB and the subsidiary company managing the elite basketball program should be co located. If these recommendations are not implemented in full, then we believe there is a little there is little prospect of additional funding bearing fruit. And of course, that is ultimately what has happened is the, the home nations were not aligned with the BBF. Uh, they became completely separate independent entities that were fighting, which still is a massive issue to this day. And that kind of brings me to my next point, which is like as much as and as easy as it is to rail on the federations for their failure, you know, over this period in the run up to 2012. Where is Sport England and UK Sport in all of this in terms of holding the federations accountable? Because they're the ones that are funding them. Um, so, you know, like, where do you see that argument? And, you know, what would you like to see or would you like to have seen from Sport England and, and UK Sport in regards to, you know, sorting out basketball? Well, it took several years after the Olympics um, for UK Sport to be really brought to task about their funding model. Um, you know, the, even when you went into London, the reputation that we had globally was we win all the sports where the best tech makes the difference. You know, the best, you know, so it was individual sports, technology driven. Team sports, we had zero success. In fact, you've got to go to, um, when did the hockey win the, uh, was it Rio? When we, what, the, the women's hockey team won a gold medal. That'd been the first team medal we won at the Olympics in God knows how many uh, um, uh, cycles. So that they changed because if you weren't, if you did not have capacity to compete for a medal, you didn't get the elite funding that was necessary. But what, where we was, where we saw funding at the elite level was to have the best players playing over here. You know, it, it's you know they weren't spread or not. Okay, the guys in the NBA were in the NBA, but you know you drop down a level, we should be able to get some of these top players playing in the UK. So that had to align with the nations and the BBL. Um, of course, it would have, you know, Joel Freeland would have blown the salary caps on one day. But that, you know, but that was how we needed alignment between the, the, the BBF, if you like, which was to be the governing body of Great Britain, um, because we'd never had, uh, we didn't have formal agreement 
for, you know, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland had to agree to be a part of that federation, um, you know, and then ultimately England wanted to run it because they said we'll have most of the players. Fair enough. So you can see it gets messy very quickly. Um, but, you know, acknowledgement that the showcase, the shop window for the sport is its elite level team. So we needed to have a Great Britain or an England or a Wales or a Scotland, but considering the Olympics, a Great Britain winning at the highest stage. So how do we develop that? This is where the federations have to, the, the, the nations have to align because the best players need to filter up through the nations into that elite level program, which meant that you're looking at um, domestic academies that are driven by the governing body, not necessarily driven by a club as we, you know, you know, standalone academies. We don't need our best kids to go to Spain to learn how to play basketball. We need to teach them here and have them filter through and then they filter into the league. You know, that's the... Um, that's where the, the success model that we'd seen from other sports. You know, you mentioned the likes of uh, hockey or, you know, extreme, you know, football, cricket, rugby. You know, even today, you know, rugby, rugby union, if you want to represent England, you have to play over here. You don't, you can't go and play in France if you want to play for England. I think they're going to give special dispensation to Mario Atoji if he goes to France or something because of Saris. But that's the kind of thing that we needed in place. And to justify funding that, you had to have a team that was successful mm -hmm. and you had to have the commitment from UK sport to support that model. Now, Sport England, they would say, well, that's not our, elite sports, not our agenda. Our agenda is participation. So as long as basketball is growing its numbers, we've done our job. So, you, I mean, your point is the strength, there's a conflict between those two bodies. Both had pots of money that they were focusing entirely on their desired outcomes at no point did they say well hold on a second if we want to fix this we need to for we need to make the most of this sport which means we need to pull our resources so what's missing in the your question sam is dcms the department for culture media and sport because that was where the power ultimately should have sat because dcms could have turned around and says no you two sort it out together the the, the big bodies and basketball you do whatever they recommend uh, the sports minister at the time was Richard Caborn. Um, and to this day, I will it was I'll never forget the meeting we had in the House of Parliament with uh, the members of the, the review panel and um, Basketball England and Sport England were there. And um, they'd had they received the report and we had this meeting with the Minister of Sport to, to talk about how they felt about it. And Keith Mayer just turned around to Richard Caborn and says, you run in a third world country. You are a bunch of Muppets. And I was like, and I'm waiting for the Minister of Sport to blow up. Not a tweet. And I was like, oh. wow. he'd done his homework. He wow. knew what was up. There's, there isn't, DCMS is a, it's not a department. It doesn't have a budget. It has influence. It does not allocate money. It's not the same as the, if sport was a part of the Department of Health, the, you know, this is on a multi-billion-pound budget. You would listen to them. DCMS, they have, they could just say please, and then say please again. And that was, and, I, and to this day, I'll never forget that meeting. I knew at that point that they weren't going to do, they weren't going to take all the things about we should have more money. They were going to embrace that. We should try to be successful at the ultimate stage. They were going to embrace that. But neither Sport England, UK Sport, and ultimately DCMS. 
the all-powerful body did not have sway with Basketball England. So at what point after the review was published and kind of, I guess you probably had some maybe follow-up meetings afterwards, did you start realising that actually this isn't going to change anything and these recommendations... On that day. On that day. It was the day before it was it was published. It went public. <laughs> in so the House of Commons. When Keith Mayer let Richard Cable have it with both barrels and the Minister of Sport didn't say anything back, I knew it was done. There was because it was just going to be the same as it's always been. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, whenever they, the powers that be within basketball have been criticised or put under the microscope, they circle the wagons and they just knuckle down. As Keith said, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I just got to stick around. You will soon be gone. Unreal. And once the report's been delivered, our job was done. So yes, we followed up and we acknowledged. We said it's you know there's little chance that the sport will accept this. And unless the sport is driven, unless it is change is driven from within the sport, there is no prospect for this. At least they know how to do it. So the, as you said, the Malin, you could implement the Malin report today and see have a sea change in the prospects of sport basketball overnight. So at what point did Sport England, like the sporting, what was Sport England's and UK sports reaction? Surely at some point over the next three to six months when it was like, because, uh, you know, when you've outlined these um, in the Madden Review, you've outlined targets and there's, there's timelines on everything. So, you know, it's literally by December 2007, chairperson, CEO and management team appointed and reformed, organisational structure in place. I remember there's even one part, which I can't find right now, but it literally says if if this if these recommendations are not going to be sort of um, actioned, uh, we recommend creating a separate governing body, uh, allowing all of the current staff to reapply for their positions, except for, you know, a certain few ones. So it was literally talking about, you know, disbanding, disbanding in basketball. And I, my understanding from sort of the timelines is you want to change within, you know, the first 12 months of this being published. Like it was, it was a quick, you wanted a quick turnaround. There was obviously things that could be done relatively quickly if, if it was going to be actioned. So surely, you know, Sporting and UK Sport must have been like, it gets to sort of the end of the year and it's like, well, nothing's happening here. We're still funding them. Why are we not stopping that funding? Why are we not well, they, doing something they, to hold them accountable for it? Some funding. Well, so this is Basketball England or England Basketball or EBBA, wherever they were at the time. I can't remember. I'm sure it was England Basketball yeah. back then. Um, that was under the remit of... Sport England. But Sport England did not have the power. They could withhold funding from the sport, but they did not have the power to fire the CEO. That had to be done by the board. But the board of Basketball England or England Basketball had no intention whatsoever of getting rid of the, uh, you know, the CEO. So the only way to put pressure on them would be to withhold money. But the money that was being withheld was stopping programs, good programs that were in place. Now, UK Sport, they put their money to, toward setting up Team GB. You know, that's the, they, and they kept a very close control on that. Um, uh, they, they put um, uh, the guy from Swimming, Alistair something, in charge of it. And then they had, um, I remember they met the, I remember met the commercial director who I just knew overnight there was going to be a problem. Um, yeah, it was the, 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 I mean, this was, um, I experienced Black Lives Matter microaggressions in 2007 that are still relevant today. You wow. know, it, it was um, wow. the name of the commercial director of, of, of BBF 
Um, James I, Toombs. I don't know what I was watching yeah. in Channel 4. Sorry? James Toombs was the commercial director in the Marvels 2012. Well, no, 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 Simon no, no, Tucky. no, 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 no. Simon Tucky. Yeah. He said to me, this was Channel 4. I was, this time I was working at Channel 4 building. Um, uh, and again, it's noticeable that um, in my time at Channel 4, um, I brought 20 sports to air, Olympic sports, and the one that never got any coverage was basketball. We did, we did a, a, a women, a, a wheelchair basketball game. That's what we covered. Couldn't cover the men's game. Just wasn't an opportunity for it. And Simon Tucky said to me that, well, of course, what we need to do is to recognise this is an urban sport and we need to go and talk to the urban audience. And I was like, really? You were still playing this tune? I was like, wow. You say urban, I say black. You know, it's just so that told me that he didn't have any feel for the sport whatsoever. I mean, his prior uh, experience was selling Weetabix because he worked at um, uh, Universal Foods or something in Hamel. Um, so that, so, so they, well, ultimately what they did was they hired a bunch of people to know anything about basketball um, and they started setting up a program. But that was being funded by UK Sport for the London Olympics. So, was, you know, it was called the BBF, but it was completely new people. There was nobody from within basketball on that panel. So Alistair something, Simon Tucky, um, Ron Wattilla. Yeah, Ron Wattilla. Yeah. Um, Chris Spice was a performance director. Yeah. I mean, again, you'll notice it's very um, middle-aged male and pale. Yeah. There was no people of color, no women. You know, the, uh, even the common sense people to have kept in, in position, they did not. You know, it's, you know, Mark Clark had been running the women's team for years and then they got rid of him. Now, I'm not saying, but then they kept Chris. It was like they were the segue people. We need someone. Now we're going to, you know, escalate. And at the time they didn't. They changed this one, but didn't that one. So there was no rhyme or reason to it. They didn't have any way to evaluate the performance. Um, and I remember at the time, in my opinion, I remember... Um, with uh, um, Liz Nickel was head of UK sports at the time. And I said, Liz, you know, if you want to be successful with basketball, put the money into the women's game. That was my, I said, that's my personal feeling. I said, because the men is going to, the best players are going to be too expensive to bring back. And we haven't got the talent with the way of training up the talent. So the women are there though. You know, Joe Leiden was a bad, she was bad then. I said, there are good players out there that you could actually make a, is it going to be medal winning? Probably not, but you know, you will get much further with, in terms of the structure with the women's team than you would have with the men's, you know, you know, because I know there was a massive argument for Lou, for Lou all to come back because of insurance. Um, and that's, you know, that, so that was the kind of thing they were spending their money on, you know, and worthy, of course, God, you would kill to have Lou all on the team and pops to have on his team. But what they didn't actually do was a, was to step back and say, what's the best way to invest our money mm-hmm. to make this sport successful? Yeah, well, what I don't understand on what I don't understand on that, um, well, speaking particularly about UK sport, is that I remember when after the Olympics, when there was all the you know the funding was pulled, then the funding was reinstated, then the funding was pulled, they were kind of getting getting it drip fed. Um, when Liz was, I remember I was at some announcement when they were, I think the announcement that when they originally announced the pulling of the funding, uh, and she was asked about you know, whether or not she felt that the BBF had mis- misspent the money because, you know, there was all this stuff about, you know, board meetings at NBA All-Star Weekend. And, you know, I remember they had a they had a training camp at St. George's Park uh, where there was no basketball court. So they literally, they bought in two basketball courts, which was, you know, stupid amounts of money, like all this kind of stuff. And and so, I, you know, I'm there like, well, clearly there's been a misspending of, of some of the funds here. But by 
UK sports measures, whenever they were asked to buy it, they said that, you know, the BBF ranked in there. They've got some type of rating system for like how, you know, the governance structure and how, how the money is spent. And it was all green lights and it was like the highest rating, possibly possible rating it could have. So I don't know, is it is it is it blind ignorance on the side of UK sport or like, you know, there surely must be issue with some of the stuff that's happened. But there's still... Well, there's nothing to benchmark it against though. I mean, there's not, there wasn't precedent for the way basketball had been run. And and team as far as team sports go, it probably it, it, you know I'm talking about nine million pounds if that's a huge number. But in the scope of how much UK sport invested into the great team GB, probably what this is for a sport that went from zero to nine million pounds. That's a huge amount of money for the sport. But in terms of overall, probably not that much of an impact. You know, I, I, I used to know that. Um, the amount of funding that sport, and you can see on Sportingland's website, you know how much money each sport gets. Um, but I, from memory, I'm sure hockey was getting something like four million pounds a year back then, and then they would have got twelve for the Olympics because they had medal aspirations. But you know, for it's, for basketball, did they spend the money? They spent it when they, they didn't all go off and go on. Um, they didn't buy retirement homes in in the Med, but. They had a, a board meeting at the All-Star game. I mean, but UK Sport wouldn't know. They could have said, well, that's really important for us to do that. You know, preparation for the games, they had a training camp at, at Houston, didn't they, I believe? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which sounded great, but, you know, you could have played, the, if you wanted to save money, you could have done that in Europe because the, the playing conditions were not going to be replicated in London. You know, Houston in June, London temperatures, come on. Yeah. Hundred degrees yeah. versus sixty. You know, it's but that's 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 a, a a nuance that you would not expect a UK sport to pick up because there was no basketball expertise in the room. And that that's why I, I, I used the Finland example um, because somebody pointed out to me that that um, in the run up to the Olympic Games, Great Britain had nine million pounds and uh, Finland had two million, and then they came out of it in the A grouping um, and stayed there for about the next three rounds of Eurobasket. And they didn't have any talent, you know. So it's, it, it wasn't the lack of talent. It wasn't the lack of good players. It wasn't a lack of good coaching. It was the lack of execution of using that resource effectively. And so essentially you get to a level of detail within the sport itself that you have the optimum outcome for that sport. Chris Spicer, the performance director, didn't know the first thing about basketball. So how would he know whether or not the training program was right or wrong? Yeah. Just yeah. know, you know. He went to University of Virginia. So what? Yeah, uh, that, that does seem no to be no basketball expertise. That is does seem to be one of the fundamental problems. You know, when you're talking about accountability and stuff, it's like, well, no one knows how basketball should be run, so no one can tell basketball England or UK or the BBF how to run basketball because no one actually knows. You know, uh, there isn't people in in high places that kind of have some level of understanding about about what's going on. But on on that point, like, you know, all the stuff about uh, you know going to Houston and. Uh, and not having coaches on a bench, it's like, you know, those are the legacy pieces that should have been enforced. It's like, well, you know, when you're talking about Olympic legacy, if all of your schedule is, uh, you know, away from London and not allowing the young kids, the fans or whatever to watch you and see you, I'm pretty sure none of the, I remember the, the games in Houston, none of them were, none of them were streamed or televised in any type of way. So it's like, there's no way of the fans engaging or connecting um, with them. And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, I look back and I just think, what a, what a missed opportunity and how, yeah. And they, had a few, they had a couple of friendlies over here, didn't they? In the run up to the games, but they should have been, you know, the game that that team was put together over six years. Yeah. You know, they should have had a training camp in Britain every year 
open to the public. Get the fans. The I, I went to one day's training camp. Uh, I think it was in Leicester or something. This was when I was at Channel 4. Um, and that was how I got let in the door, was because I was working with a British TV channel. Um, and actually, I came and I, was, I had a production team with me. I mean, they came away and said, well, we can't cover this. There isn't anything to cover. So we went and we found, um, I'm sure it was a wheelchair. It may have been a women's wheelchair team as well that they played in Worcester for us to cover. Uh, you know, but there should have been, you know, the, uh, you know, you'd look at even Team USA. They take their team on the road around the USA and they run up to the Olympics. They have a camp in Vegas and they play in New York and then they play against college kids and they play against high school kids. They, you know, they, they have a squad of 40 and they cut it down to 20. We didn't do anything. There's no publicity, nothing to get the British public and the basketball playing public, which the audience was big. But in terms of dedicated, you know, the people that were, people like you and me, we'd have watched it anyway because we're basketball fans. The challenge was how do you bring in the not the casual yeah. basketball fan, yeah. the, the person who loves basketball, but they think it's the Harlem Globetrotters or they watch the NBA finals once a year. And they, I say we, they did not talk to that audience at all. Not one time, not even one little bit. That's definitely basketball's really failed to cross over into the mainstream consciousness. I always say that like it's very easy for me to forget that I'm in the basketball bubble. So I think that you know everyone's suddenly caring about something or something's a big deal when it's like, well, no, actually, if I go out onto the street and speak to a hundred people walking down the street, the chances of them knowing you know any member of the Great Britain senior men's team or women's team of them no, knowing not, not a chance. Yeah, not a not chance. a chance. Uh, I couldn't name. I couldn't name two of the starting five of the men's GB team now. That's crazy. I couldn't. Not now. Yeah. Because I'm just not engaged with the sport. There isn't a story to tell. Yeah. I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell you who the most valuable player of the BBL is. I couldn't tell you the best team in the BBL is. I mean, in the, if you asked me without cold, I'd have been so. Oh, it's got to be still Fab. But then I found out Fab's now in the NBA. So it's yeah. you know that it's yeah. you know the, the ne never as a sport with so much potential done such a poor job of selling itself. So talking about your own personal situation, then what what do you think it would take to re-engage someone like you to take an interest in in basketball? Uh, you know, British basketball specifically. Do you think it just needs to be shoved in front of your face by getting a regular, you know, free-to-air TV spot or being in the papers, like in a way that you don't have to seek it out? Like, or, or you know, or do you think it's something completely? Dress different? the product. Give me a product I can engage with. Give me some personalities I can engage with. It's not, you know, the 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 uh, the local. The success of the local franchises drowns out the lack of national engagement. If someone tells me I can watch the, the BBL trophy final or a Great Britain game on the BBC red button, it doesn't really get me excited. It needs to be on BBC Two or, you know, ITV or Sky. So, but then when I turn it on, how good is the product? Because although you can say British basketball has improved, you look at our competitors, you look to the continent and you say, oh, well, hold on a second. Have you seen how good that EuroLeague is now and the quality of the player that's coming through? Those are the stories we need to be able to engage with. You know, and that's, um, you know, I, the, the, it's moved on in several ways. When I look at it now, I see only one set of lines on the court. That's great. You know, the badminton courts aren't marked up anymore on, in their showcase. You know, and they're selling out the O2. That's great. No, but it's the difference. When the NBA comes to town, or well, used to come to town, 
the whole city stopped for it, you know, and that's something that we, uh, you know, actually you ask about what would engage me. Actually, you should ask the sport, why aren't you engaging with him? Why aren't you engaging with players from days gone by? I mean, I couldn't tell you what Andrew Sullivan's doing anymore. And he only retired, what, two years ago? Why? Whereas if you look at the NBA, I mean, you must have watched The Last Dance, right? Yep. And all the interviews yeah. with former Chicago Bulls players. Oh, and Tony Cucho, ambassador for the Chicago Bulls. Scotty Pippen, you know, that, they're still ingrained within the sport. Or you'll see somebody that, um, you know, Vladi Divac, now the general manager of the Sacramento Kings. You know, their, their alumni are still part of the sport. And you look, we, th this country is filled with that. You know, rugby union, football, cricket, it's all run from former... And I'm not saying it all needs to be replaced with former players, but where are those stories? Where is that engagement? Forget me, more recent players. You know, I mentioned Drew. I mean, God, what an ambassador for the sport. Kieran, you know, I mean, you know, you've done two podcasts with him. But where is he? In the, I don't, and I don't know. I've not seen the coverage. I'm sure for the BBL coverage, the most cost-effective way to do it is you get Dan, who's perfectly good as a commentator, and then you get another coach from around the BBL to be the color commentary. Nothing to camera. You're not selling anything, you know. Mm -hmm. What? You, whereas if I look at um, and I, I pick on football or I pick on rugby, you know, ITV. I know it's going to be Lawrence Delaglio. I'm going to see pitch side with Jill Douglas. If it's the BBC, it's going to be um, the old hooker Brian. What's his name? We don't have anything. You have. You talked about some of the old games that that BBL are posting on YouTube now. You know, Sky did it right. You could just replicate the Sky model. You had a regular presenter, two camera with players that you saw over and over again. And that becomes a personality. And then that's, oh, that guy here, he was commentating last week and now I'm seeing him playing. They, you know, they, the, the, um, there was a, a thing that they called about then the star system. You identify the, the talent. I hate the word talent, but let's, we know what I mean. And then you groom them. You groom them so that that becomes the showcase. Kieran, who's a great personality, I listened to his podcast, you know, He's got, he's got, he's, in, he's engaging, he's exciting. Why isn't he involved being a part of the BBL coverage? Because at least it would be, you know, a regular voice that I get to listen to. I mean, then the, I'm sure the problem is it's just the cost. Oh, yeah. we can't afford yeah. to move him down. I can get the coach from the local team to do it for free. You know, it, again, it's a very small-minded approach to it. I think the same goes with uh, coverage of the national team. I mean, again, you've, you've got to promote your biggest stars. You've got to, and if you haven't got one, make one. You know, just you know, it, it's give me something. Um, the television audiences, audience in general, believe in people. That's what they connect with. Now they may have an affiliation, you know, to a to a franchise or a club, but the real, the national. You know, if you ask somebody, well, oh, someone in London, why are you a Man United fan? Oh, Giggs, he was great. You know that that's. We don't have that. We don't have that within the sport. I don't. I could say I know the names of the teams, but I couldn't tell you any of the players. And for somebody who played professional for fifteen years, that's a pretty poor endorsement of the sport. What would you say? I feel like the BBL, um, 
you know, when I spoke to when I did the owners podcast, actually, I was speaking about the kind of production costs of of TV and stuff. Because right now they've got an automate. I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff, but they've, they've basically got an automated uh, system called Key Motion, which tracks the ball. And it's, I mean, it's, the quality is not great. Um, but they were basically saying that TV production, the cost of doing, you know, multicam setup. Uh, and all that is just is too much. The BBL can't actually afford it at the moment. Um, you know, if you were the BBL and kind of in that situation where, okay, your production right now isn't good enough, um, you need to improve it, but you don't actually have the budget to be able to do so. What would you? What would the solution be there? Well, then you make it work. You make the numbers work because if, if I'm not mistaken, they stream every game. Yes, right? on YouTube for their betting partners yes. so that's yeah. the revenue now i don't know what the numbers are involved but you've got to build and they would have like how many games a year that they would do i mean they did it they did something a few years ago and they had a lot of games on the bbc red button thing so they must have improved the production standards for that but they didn't i mean you just take a risk and this is the problem because the central funds for the bbl no they don't but you plenty of those clubs I, you know, the owners of those teams are not starving. So they could put more money into it if they wanted to. But why do I need to do that? I've got a successful community program. You know, that doesn't count as part of the BBL pot. So, I mean, there's, there's the business model for the BBL. And this is not a criticism. It's an observation. Because if I was in that position, I may well do the same thing. But these clubs do very well in their local communities. And if they wanted to improve the production standards, they would just have to invest in it. That's what other sports do. Now, you know, the, the quote unquote, the, you know, the model that is um, thrown out over and over again is what netball did. That's got to be 15 years ago where they said, right, we will re we'll have a game of the week that's going to be on Sky Sports. We will pay for the production cost. Um, I think it was Simon Golden Productions from Sheffield came down. We'll record it as live on the Saturday. It will air on Tuesday on um, Sky Sports 1, whatever. You know, that is a cost that the sport took on board to deliver that throughout the course of the season. And the Netball Super League was always going to get the fans because Netball fans are crazy. But what they did was they got the story on television and it got a sponsor. I think it was Co-op first and then Vitalite and then Pucker Pies. How the hell did Netball get Pucker Pies and basketball didn't? <laughs> You know, who's going to eat a, a puck of pie? You know, this is, it, it's, you know, the sport is littered with examples of right and wrong decisions and invariably we get the wrong one. I mean, to me, if media coverage is at the heart of your development of the sport, you invest in it. You don't, you can't wait. And if you're not going to invest in it, don't talk about it. Just say, oh, well, you know what? We're quite satisfied with where we are and this is where we see the sport going. Um, and until such time as that changes, this is, you know, we're okay with this, but that's not the narrative that we get. You try to, and this is the, this is where you have a skeptical basketball public, because you're selling me a, a, a um, you're selling me a, 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 a cream puff. You're not selling me the, the real deal. I know that that's pretty poor coverage. Remote control coverage of a basketball game. Why would I want to watch that? You know, better off just having the fans all there holding their phones and getting passed up into it. You know, what you were doing back in the GB days with a single camera um, recording games and under-23 games that you were doing. Again, what happened to the under-23 program? I'm sorry, Future Stars. <laughs> That's what's missing. It's that, it's that um, and it's not the people. It's somebody whose job it is to come up with the plan. 
And here's the plan for the next 10 years. And here's how we're going to get there. And here's what it's going to cost. And here's what each of you clubs need to invest to make that happen. And, you know, it, it's not. And again, it's personal opinion. I mean, I remember saying many years ago that if you if you've only got I think they made when they did the BBC, they made it so that every team got to appear on the BBC thing or something. Why? You know, the, the, the Premier League. Which teams are the audience that the fans come out for? They want to see Liverpool and Man City. They don't want to watch, you know, what's tonight? Norwich and Everton? BBC's numbers can be through the floor for that. You know, but if you get Spurs and Man City or Chelsea and Arsenal, put the best teams on and build the personalities. And that, so it's not the camera that's the problem. It's I don't know who the hell I'm watching. Yeah. I could just, it, yeah. I know on those, those betting platforms um, that uh, the Filipino League, does remarkably well because it's people betting. You know, people who bet will gamble on anything. They've got no idea who those teams are, but it comes on at, you know, it's first, it's in the working day, 9.30 to 11.30 in the morning. I can stream it while I'm on my laptop at work and I can watch that and I can bet on it. That's, you know, but they couldn't tell you who played in it. So, I mean, you know, it's as a betting vehicle, the solution they've got now is, I'm sure does very well for them. But if you want to truly engage and grow that sport, build some personalities. You put somebody at the front of the sport, become the face of basketball in the country. You could say, oh, well, then, oh, did I just put a name out there? Let, and then build them as a personality. They should be, you know, why isn't Luol Deng on um, Question of Sport? Why is it, you know, that, that even Michi got on that, you know, but that was through his... PR activities, not through the sport. Yeah. The sport, you know, yeah. I got, you know, they, they criticized the days when we had the so-called big owners, but um, you had appearances on, um, you know, questions of sport. They think it's all, all the, the sporting quiz shows. What's the one on Sky now? Legends uh, with um, uh, Jamie Redknapp and, uh, oh God, and the James Corden and Freddie Flintoff. I mean, that, we should be building our personalities so we know who these people are, not just when they play. Because what happens when they play if they're no good? Justin Robinson, I know him, he's a current player. Why aren't they building his profile? A kid out of London, traveled the world, back in London. He's back. You know, to even Obi, that's another one, and the Love Island guy. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. it's like, oh, well, we're in talks, we don't know if we can keep him. I mean, the only reason he's here is because he's got commitments from ITV or whatever. Find a way. Then maybe he needs to be the front of the sport. I don't know who it is. Yeah. You know, yeah. give me, build me a star. So one of the things uh, you said there was was talking about other European markets and sort of comparisons. One of the interesting things that struck me in the in the manner of view was it did have a list of the the major markets in Europe with the number of registered players in comparison to England. Um, and I've actually recently been doing some research and I, I have the current figures. So. So bearing in mind, so this was uh, this was 2000, and this date is from 2007. Um, so you had you had France had 400,000 registered members, uh, Germany had just short of 200,000, Spain had 300,000, and England had 25,000. Um, in that time, so that the recommendation in the, in the Madden, well, one of the sort of the targets set out in the, in the Madden report was was that by 2012, England doubles their membership base, which would, would take it to 50,000 registered members. Currently, uh, England has 31,000. So it's grown by 6,000 in, what's that, 13 years? Um, in the same period, 
Uh, France has grown their membership base by 300,000. Uh, Germany has grown their membership base by 15,000. And Spain has grown their membership base by about 85,000. So clearly some, something is going wrong in England. And Sports are being marketed. Well, you know, I, the, no, I had the definition of membership. You know, that's the... Uh, the 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 thing that's missing there. I mean, and that is a sad indictment of what we've got. Because if you look at the participation numbers, the kids are playing. There are people playing. But give me a reason to be a member of the, the national governing body. What's the benefits of being a, a member of the governing body? You know, so make uh, that feel like a family. That is exactly. I want to be like Sam. Yeah. Are I, you a member? I, I know I'm not, which is hilarious because of of I was saying to someone, there's no reason why someone like me shouldn't be a member right and i actually feel i'm now at a point where i feel like the single uh lowest risk highest reward sort of biggest point of leverage for basketball england um is to just massively incentivize membership uh in a way that like you're saying right now all the players already exist they're just not taking part in registered basketball activity the only reason the only incentive right now to join the to, to become a member is to play national league because you have to so everyone that's a member is doing it out of they have no choice because they want to play National League. Everyone else is taking part in, you know, whether it's Midnight Madness, whether it's the, the, the central venue leagues that are taking place, whether it's the local leagues, whether it's the going down the park and, and playing with your friends. You know, none of that is is uh, sort of formal affiliated um, basketball. And it just, it feels like, well, you know, if Barcelona England made a membership level that was £5 for someone like me, that's not necessarily a player, but, you know, I want 50% off tickets to all finals events and I want a 50% discount off uh, my first purchase with Wilson and I want a free half chicken from Nando's. The moment yeah. I spend that £5, I know I've already made, I've got my value for money, I've made my money back, it's a complete no-brainer. If you go on the Barcelona membership page right now, there is literally no information or no reasons given for why I would want to be a member unless I'm trying to register to pay for National League. And that's just, you know, a fundamental problem. Um, where also, you know, it's like if Barcelona England took that membership level from 31,000 to 100,000, which is what Netball currently has, for example, the floodgates would open because all of a sudden, you know, objectively, Sporting England can't deny your, 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 your base uh, because you have them all registered. From a commercial standpoint, from a sponsorship yeah. standpoint, you've got a much bigger base to reach out to. And so it becomes like a massive compounding effect that actually just your revenues in itself. Well, if you increase your membership by uh, 70,000 and it's £10 a head, average spend or whatever, you've got another £700,000 in income now to play with, to be able to do stuff with. Like, it seems, I, I feel like it's so simple and so obvious that maybe I'm missing something and maybe they've tried something in the past and they've got it wrong or, or what it is. I, I don't know. But it just seems so fundamentally obvious I don't understand why it's not well, a bigger focus. This is not I'm the last person to defend them. But the thing to remember is that um, if you talk to a governing body, they'd say we are the administrator of the body. We are not the commercial arm of the body. So the commercial operation, fundamentally, they are seeking to grow their funding from Sport England. That would be their that would be their rationale to grow the membership. But what they don't really have, and they can't, there's nothing to stop them from doing that, but they don't really have a commercial operation that says, yeah, if we can turn that 30,000 membership into 100,000, that is then a database of information with GDPR, you know, with the right uh, permissions that we can monetize. You know, you want to talk to 100,000 kids interested in basketball, this is how much it's going to cost for you to talk to them. Whereas at the moment, that 31,000, I'm sure that's probably pretty much in line with who's registered to play 
and who's registered to coach and who's registered to be a, a you know a board per member or chairman you know chairperson or something like that you know the 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 the, uh, the in terms of benefits it doesn't need to necessarily you know you, you know you've mentioned some quite straightforward but give me some physio treatment you know give me some of the things that will help me on the basketball court give me access to um, uh, to rehabilitation, give me access to medical supplies. That's the kind of thing that was lacking in my playing days. And if they still haven't addressed it, and that's 30 years, 25 years later, I mean, the sport is going to keep doing what it does. And there's going to be pockets of excellence where there will be individuals that will be doing rather well out of the sport. And it becomes like a cottage industry. I'm all right, Jack. You know, there's... Um, that is not the route you mentioned netball. The route that they've taken was right. We're going to pull our resources and we're going to drive this horse and cart. And here's where we're going, folks. Everybody jumped on board and roll on success, ultimately culminating with winning the Commonwealth gold medal. You know, that is the story that is, I feel is a crying shame that hasn't happened for basketball. Yeah. And I, and I feel yeah. bad that now at God, 54 years old, for somebody who played from 12 till I was, I retired at 38. So I was at 25, 26 years I played. And so I, I love the sport more than life, more than anything else. I am a fan, a spectator, but I'm not engaged with the sport in this country at all. And I'm not trying to say I'm the prize, but if you can't get me, how are you going to get the man on the street? You know, the, the, even the fashion thing has gone now. I mean, I, I, there wasn't that long ago when you saw people would be wearing merchandise that was relevant to the British game. Now it's all about the sneakers. You know, it's like, what, have you got the latest Kobe's or the latest Kyrie's? You know, there, there, there needs to be, you know, we don't engage with the culture of the sport. I mean, and again, it, it may still, I'm sure it's still there. I mean, I'm just, I've just aged out of it. But it used to be an obsession. People used to have the latest shoe and they had to have the latest shirt and they had to have, you know, and they're working on this latest move. If you can't see it, how can I work on it? You know, people mm -hmm. want it to be Diamond Danny Lewis. You know, people want, and I'm not saying that that's, you know, a great role model, but, you know, that's, you know, people want it to be like a Steve Bucknell or they knew with John Amici. You know, Lou Aldeng's been retired. Lou's been retired for a couple of years. So who's the next one? Tell me, I, and it, it's, if you're talking to the BBL, it's a cry. You've got to say to them, well, who are you marketing? Luol's not there anymore. So who's the next player? And every yeah. sport has somebody to put in the shop window. We boarded up the shop window, spun the building round, and, and said, go over the road. Netball's over there. Just madness. Okay, so I'm aware of time. Like, you know, we've done a good little yeah. section on, on, on the Madden review, um, Madden report, uh, and I think it will provide a lot of insight and hopefully a lot of people will read it uh after this because i think it should it, it should be quite insight the, the other thing i just i did want to briefly touch upon um which actually you went into a little bit in our first podcast and you spoke about the players association um and in, in that podcast you actually said that you believed that it was one of the most fundamental things that doesn't exist today that would help sort of drive the sport forward um can you give us like sort of, I guess, the high-level overview of the forming of the Players Association originally, um, why it came about, who was involved, uh, and kind of what its role was, and then what it was able to achieve in the, in the time that it existed? Yeah, I, um, so 
at the, when I first came back and started playing professionally um, in the UK, um, there was no, the only support you got as a player was through whatever the club delivered for you. Um, and that was limited. You know, we had, you know, guys playing on $50 a, a, a week contract, you know, and they'd have no physio and no treatment, you know, and you have to bring your own bag of ice to the game afterwards. You go in the bar, I've got to get some ice for an injury. The, the, the insurance you had, so once you register for EBIT for Basketball England, there's an insurance, but that's part of the, that's one of the benefits of membership is medical insurance. But the insurance at the time was, um, I think if you died, you got a thousand pounds. You had to lose an eye to get 250 quid or something. It was, it was, it was the, the same level of insurance as if you paid zero, um, uh, insurance fees. I don't give you any money. So the insurance company would literally give you that just for letting them have your name on their books. I'm going to pay any, a, pre a premium. And yet, if you paid £10 per member, you mentioned that number early on, you could have uh, private uh, health care if you got a certain injury above. It was, there was no treatment whatsoever. And then I, I was fortunate enough to get my first England cap and we travelled. And then with the England team, you would get, there would be a head of delegation, but no medical support when we travelled. So then we go and we, we travelled playing... Um, on the road, my first cap was away to Spain. Um, and then you're having the team meal afterwards and the players were all at one end of the table drinking jugs of water, nothing saying anything wrong with drinking water. And yet the head of delegation and the, 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 the various delegations, um, they're then they're drinking wine. Hold up, so why are you drinking wine? I've got to drink water. I'm the one who's got to sweat. In fact, why are you here? And there's no physio here. I've got a bad knee. And so that was... And then we had the issue where the contracts... The playing contracts. So there was a clause from memory. And what happened was, so they would, particularly with Americans, they would do it over here. They would sign a player on a trial. And I think it was a two-month trial. Um, the season used to start in September. And they'd say, uh, and they'd say, oh, it's the same as the NBA. Because the NBA, your contract, if you're there at December 31st, they have to pay you out for the full year. So over here... It was if you got to November 30th, they had to pay you for the full season. Now, these are guys that are making, you know, $200 a month. They're not making big money. The amount of players that would get cut on the 29th of November. And I was like, so just to get rid of them. And then they bring another batch in with another eight weeks. And that's why the poorer clubs. Now, the money, the investment in the sport was different back then. But players had no medical treatments. There was no life insurance. There was no uh, no support, no protection if you you know if you uh, suffered in the in the pursuit of the sport. And so we just said, look, we need to have a players' association. You know, at least then we've got something that we can sell. You know, we can try and get a, a, a booper to sponsor us or something like that. Um, and that was sort of like the idea. Um, and we also we wanted to have a voice. There was no voice for the players. Every decision was being made by the owners. Um, and the BBL was, at the time, I would contend, driving uh, EBBA. You know what um, BBL said? EB England basketball would pretty much follow. Um, and so you were having 
British players, perfectly capable British players that weren't able to play because I could get a cheaper American. Why would I want to hire a British player? You know, it's always been the way domestic players cost more than good quality domestic players cost more than, a, a you know, a foreigner. And, you know, you have um, I, I just, a guy who was an all-star on a team, great player, I remember him, good guy. And he told me that when he signed his contract, the club will remain nameless, faxed him the back page, the signature page of the contract. He didn't even see the contract. And he got here and they were paying him $50 a week. And he had to go out and do 10 hours a week in the community. And he had to go to all these practice sessions. It just felt like there was something wrong. So who, who was involved? Who was it? Who was the sort of the driving force behind getting it together? And how did you kind of coordinate so that... Because the difficult thing always seems to be getting people on the same page, right? It's always getting people together to actually act align, in an aligned way. Well, the other thing was we had clubs that were going... Good big clubs that were going down. So in that year, Sunderland had always been a really good team. And suddenly they lost all their money. And then what would happen is they were just not paying them. So players would keep playing in the hope that they would get paid. So you're talking about greats like Russ Saunders. Um, Steve Nelson was playing uh, um, up there at the times. Bucknell was there. Um, then we had Worthing, the players, Colin Irish, Al, Alan Cunningham, Alton Burr was still around. And we just sort of got together. I think we were a final in Birmingham and about 20 of us sat down and said, look, what do we want to do? We had an, an outside party, a lady called Gail Davis, um, who was working in support of Guildford at the time, um, who said she would help us to organize it. And she knew um, her husband was uh, um, a, a, a big wig at PricewaterhouseCoopers and she knew insurance companies. And she explained to us how there's, there's only... You know, there's a hundred insurance companies, but there's only two underwriters in the country. So she said, we'll go and meet one of the underwriters. They will put a policy together for us and we'll take it around several uh, insurers and see who wants to take this on. And we did. And the insurance got improved overnight. And England basketball did change the insurance policy. We explained to them that, look, all you got to do is charge one pound and the insurance goes from nothing to right up here. And then we tried to address the BBL contract and say, you know, you've got to, it, it needs to be transparent. You know, you need to, it needs to be, you know, these are the things we pursue. And the BBL contract did get changed. Now, the BBL would say it was going through the process of being changed anyway. That's okay. I don't mind. I don't, we didn't want the credit for it. But suddenly, overnight, the players had a voice and they voted me to become the chief executive. And so I was that, I'm talking about the shop window. That was me. Um, and you, you know what happens with the flag bearer in any war film? He's the guy who stands up with the flag. Who's the first? I think I said to you last time that when the Players Association, we, we voted in and put ourselves into effect, I never played for England again. Coincidence. I, know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to uh, speculate other than to say three backup centres on the teams I played for played for England in the time after that. And I never got a look in. And that was remarkable. So the, the reaction from within the sport was, oh, no, they're talking to us now. And so, you know, you'd have players that would just get cut for no good reason. And they just stopped paying them for no good reason. But players that were stranded, they would get cut. and They wouldn't pay for them to fly back home if they were Americans. You know, it was it was really messy um, and, and nasty uh, situation. What then, year was it formed? I want to say 90, 
93, 92 or 93. And in, in, terms, of the, in terms of the structure, were you inviting any player to join and then they had to pay you a fee? Like pay the- I did a roadshow. I ran around the country. And I, was, and I went to Cod. I, went, I remember going to Swindon, a team in Swindon, because we wanted every player to be involved. And the benefit that we had, we had a, a sponsorship by a company called Swift Cover, Swift something. It was a phone, telephone company. And so it was phone cards. So if you signed up, if you joined the, the union, the Players Association, we charge one pound membership fee because that's all we just did one just because you had to be a transaction to be a part of a union. Um, but if you signed up, you got this 10 pound swift call card, swift call. And that was a phone card to call anywhere in the world. Now, of course, that's irrelevant nowadays. But for one pound, I get 10. You know, and all the all the guys that have been to college had their girl back in the States and the Americans wanted to call home. It was it was successful. We had you know, several hundred players that signed up. Yep, oh, I'm really? in. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't like it was just me and Carl and you know a couple of them and Carl Miller hanging out in the you know just working together. And so we were then trying to talk to um, products. We were trying to get discounts on um, on gear, on you know clothing, uh, uniforms and stuff like that. So we had a deal for kit. So for teams to get kit, there was a discount. I can't remember for the lot. I don't know. It would have been something like imprints or you know one of the, the companies is still around now. Um, and it was just, it was a way to get, say, look, here, you want to talk to the players? Here we are. And you, you know, would, you, we, we would, turn up. would you represent um, players from abroad, like British players that were abroad as well, that were playing in, in other places or was it? Well, they were open, but we were very limited in what we could do. And there wasn't very many back then. This is pre-Bosman. Yeah, okay. There wasn't any, Steve Bucknell and Joel Moore were the only ones playing overseas. You know, there was no, uh, you know, the kids in college, but, you know, we couldn't really represent those. I mean, that, but we were open to any play. The focus, it has to be said, was was very much on British players because we felt passionate that they were being stiffed more than Americans. But also Americans were um, uh, were members as well. But we could do more for the British players than we could for the Americans because it was all about work permits and visas. And so, you know, we were arguing very much that you need to stay at two work permits and a naturalized player, you know, that we don't, we, otherwise you're taking jobs from British players. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, that was one of our big arguments. So we were slightly biased towards British players, um, but it was successful for a year and a half, two years. We were growing and we had AGM and we, you know, we, we had more and more players from some of the new clubs that were getting around Manchester Giants we came back with the Cook group and um, Leopards got picked up and, and all we were was just a voice, Sam. We didn't have any formal power, but we if a player had a grievance, yours truly could go and talk to, at the time, Kevin Rutledge at the BBL and say, Kev, what's going on here? And he would listen. You know, Kevin's a smart man. In fact, he's one of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. And he was open to try to work with us, but there was always limitations. You know, it would be, oh, well, that's a road club and we'll fix that situation later on. But so we just wanted some regulation. It wasn't, you know, the sport will grow if we can harness the power of the players. One of the things that Carl mentioned on his podcast, uh, which I hadn't heard before, he was talking about the Players Association. He was saying that um, there was like an all-star game at one point that you were, you guys were talking about threatening to not play or to do a protest on court or, or some type of like player association revolt. Well, the Players Association weren't going to play. 
Yeah, what, so you, members of the what was the issue? Oh, God, I don't know, Sam, you're talking about 30 years ago now. <laughs> um, it would have been, it probably would have been something, it would, the, the fundamental issues were around medical insurance and treatment and the playing contract with the BBL for the players. So it would have been around that, mm. something around mm. there. The salary cap could have been around that as well, but no, it wouldn't have been around the salary cap. I mean, one good thing that did happen, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this. So the, um, uh, at the time, Magic Johnson retired to HIV, um, declared HIV positive, and then he came back. When he came out, he, and what he did was he did a, um, a barnstorming tour. So he put some of his old players together, um, you know, Mark Aguirre, Kurt Rambis, a bunch of old NBA players, and they went and played some exhibition games around Europe. And the first game they played was at the London Arena against a British Basketball Players Association team. No way. No way. Yes way. And in fact, my photo, my, my um, thingy on WhatsApp is me playing against Magic. <laughs> so there must be video footage of that somewhere. Probably. Well, BBL had nothing to do with it. No. BBL had nothing to do with it. They just, they just, just came over. Independent. Um, they play. It was just okay. We got. It was sponsored by Seven Up. It was a Seven Up Magic Johnson Seven Up tour. Um, they came. We did some press. Um, there wasn't anybody. To, I mean, I didn't know anything about television back then, so I can't even say I can't. Now I'd be like, wow. You said should have had BBC. Or so. It may have been covered for news or something like that. Um, but we had no um, BBL England basketball didn't get involved. And now they could have. But they chose not to. And there's a big crowd. There's a big audience in there. Yeah. I, never just, I mean, we got beat by about 50. I mean, they destroyed <laughs> us. But, I mean, I, Magic's my hero. I mean, I wasn't going to play hard against him. Rather, I remember it was me. Carl played. Ronnie Baker was playing. It was all British players as well. Unreal. Never never heard that story at all. Never knew of it, but that's a, that's a great well, one yeah, to really dig into. I need to look that up. As you said, there's got to be footage of it somewhere. I'm yeah. sure it was the Magic Johnson 7-Up Tour. And so, so what happened to the Players Association? Why did it end up ceasing to exist? Bosman. Bosman ruling. But why did so that... the biggest, the yeah, biggest issue we had, um, I talked about having um, too many foreign players. So when the Bosman ruling was announced overnight, I mean, Jean-Marc Bosman, you know, the Belgian footballer, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. who he argued the case. He went to court and said, I'm a European. We're part of the EU. I can play and work anywhere in Europe. You can't restrict that. You can't restrict me. Right? So I can play anywhere. Right? So I think he was Belgian and he wanted to play in Germany. But they, he was classed as a foreign player. So at the time, you know, you're talking about why the other English players playing overseas. They weren't playing overseas because this is what's remarkable about Steve Buckman and Joel Moore when they went and played in Germany. They were the two foreign players. They were like the two Americans. So they weren't competing against Germans. They were competing against Americans. When the Bosman ruling came in, suddenly every British player could go and play in Europe as a European. So I went to play in Greece, um, but went to play in Greece as well. Some of the other guys, I think Ronnie went and played in Germany. Now, BBL's argument was there is going to be an exodus. We're going to lose all of our British players overnight. So to combat that, we need to go from having two work permits to five work permits. And that means five Americans. 
bearing in mind that Americans are way cheaper than British players. So our argument was, maybe that's why we were going to boycott the All-Star game. No, because we had fruitful discussions with England basketball, and England basketball were the ones who set the rules with the home office. So we went and we spoke to them, and, and our argument, or my argument, was if you go to five Americans, and um, I should pre uh, prefix this by saying we, we were supported by the GMB, a big union uh, I'm sure it's still a big union now. And we were introduced that through the Rugby Football League, by uh, Rugby League. So they were a partner of ours as well. So we, we had advice and support from them. And what they explained to us was, in every scenario, when work permits are allowed in sport, without exception, a sport will use everyone they can. Because it's, it's less expensive labour. I won't say cheap labour. And so the BBL said, no, this is just to protect us because we're sure we're going to lose 50 of our playing staff and we don't have 50 British players to replace them with. We went to the BBA and they said, no, we're going to support you. We think it's right. You know, there's going to be a compromise. Maybe we'll go to three, but we're not going to go to five. And that's, that's fine. We're going to do that. So then Mike Smith, who was the CEO of the BBL, he, we had a meeting at EBBA um, and again, I remember this clear as a day. We sat there and uh, to discuss what the final terms were. And EBBA just came out and said, we've decided to endorse BBL's pro um, solution. And so from next season, we're going to go to five work permits. And we're not desperate to do it, but that's what we're going to go to. And so then you will hear the legacy of that. Famous teams, the Jet Wash, Cheshire Jets, five Americans. Every team said, well, let's get five Americans. I don't need British players. Just five Americans. But the exodus didn't happen. I think maybe three or four of us went to Europe on good-sized contracts. The rest, many of them went for a little bit and came back. Now, it helped down the road for the, the guys that came out of college two, three years later. You know, they had better opportunities. But the immediate impact on the BBL was negative. The impact was British players suddenly had to play for less money or not play at all. So you had all-star BBL players dropping down into the EB, BB, you know, EB1, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the BBL clubs now went to five Americans. And they did it overnight, transformed the sport. Overnight, the BBL went from having players that have been, you know, the, the you know, think about the, the, the Paul Stimpsons of this world who played at Crystal Palace forever, or the Steve Asinders at Birmingham Bullets forever. Or, you know, I've been playing over here for... Um, six years at the time and Mick Bett had been playing forever. Those players were done, done overnight because I can get five Americans and they're pretty decent, but I can pay them $10,000 instead think, of paying you uh, 30000 I, th I think it was, was it, it was five Americans and one dual national as well, right? So I, yeah, like, the dual national was already there. So yeah, they went from two yeah. and they naturalized dual yeah, national naturalized. Yeah, yeah. to five plus that. And then they eventually, you know, three, four years down the road, it all got thrown out. I mean, it's all, I mean, I don't know what it is now, but it, but the immediate impact was suddenly there was nobody there to drive the, the Players Association. I left, Carl took up the reins with Mark Robinson, but they didn't have the same, you know, the same motivation that, that we had because they were, you know, there was the Americans that were now making up 50% of the league didn't want to, why do I need to join a player's association? Yeah.
There was there was almost no need for it because there wasn't enough British players to justify it. Like, well, uh, there wasn't enough players that were going to stay here for more than a year. Yeah. So most Americans, they're now coming over straight out of college and it's seen as a gateway. I come to England, I play there for a year and then I'll go and play somewhere else in Europe. My agents told me he's going to place me somewhere else. And that's where you started to get those contracts where players would say, yeah, I'm here until I get a bigger job somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so the, one of the arguments I used to have with the BBL is they, the BBL feels very strongly or felt very strongly. I'm not saying that's still the case, but I think it is about the name on the front of the shirt. And I said, but you've got to give consideration to the name on the back of the shirt. You've got to develop the players. The personalities are what sell the clubs. But they weren't interested in that. What they wanted was cheap players, cheap labor, who's going to come. They're going to go do all my school's program as part of their contract, pay them $1,000 a month, and they cut them after two months. And if they make the whole season, cut them after eight months. One-year contracts. Multi-year contracts went out the window overnight. Why do I need one? I'm just going to get five new Americans for nothing. And they said, oh, no, we won't. And they swore blind they weren't going to do it. But immediately, it's once one did it, everybody else did. And then the five American teams dominated the league. You know, I said, Cheshire, the, the jet wash, it was a good team. Okay, they weren't all Americans. Perro was New Zealander. But it was a really solid team. They put John Thomas, John McCord, that was a great team. You know, a five players and they could play 40 minutes. You know, the way the league was played in the, in the, the state, the, well, the stadiums, the gyms that we played in, you know, it's the, the, the clubs that were trying to do it the right way ultimately went another direction. You know, the, uh, the teams that tried, so London Towers, because they were still playing in Europe, tried to stick with domestic players. But I remember Kev tying himself in nuts trying to put a team together that met the new rules so they could play in Europe. So, but they never, you know, with a, the year before I went, um, we won every, so my, so my first year at Kingston, we swept everything. Then my first year at Towers, we didn't win, but then the following year we won everything again. That was with Danny and Windless and Bucknell. And, you know, so, oh, it's a super team, but Bucknell left. I left. Uh, they kept Neville. They kept the Americans and added more Americans. And ultimately, that's what the sport has shaped into now. Again, they gave up. There was no opportunity for a kid to... A young Drew Sullivan, who was 16 at the time, was the future, was stuck at the end of the bench and was not going to get any court time. You know, so and he obviously went off to high school and college. That was the, the... You want to talk about legacy, the legacy of that rule change. Mm. If if a player was looking to set up a, a union now, would you be willing to speak to them and give them advice on kind of the best way of going about it and kind of your learnings? I talked to somebody about it a couple of years ago, actually, and they never did anything. I said, yeah, I'd be more. I said I would be happy to give advice and to talk through my experience. And in fact, I could do it much better now than I could back then, because then all I knew was basketball. You know, now I've built a moderately successful company and a, and a career in media. I know how to run a business. I would know now how to build that. But do you want to have the same argument? To actively get involved in it, the sport even, as a union rep or as a board member, the same arguments are being had today that were being had when I was playing 20 years ago. And that scares me, scares me greatly. Could you, could you ever see yourself getting back involved 
with the game as you know whether it's at you know within basketball england uh the federation level or i don't know owning a bbl club or anything like that get me involved. uh you know at the and there was an element of um and I was, and you can say it now in the current climate. There was an element of racism involved when they set up GB. I was a per, there was every reason they should have had me as part of that board or asked me to be part of that board. I'd just gone to the Manning Review. I had broadcast rights. I was, you know, we were trying to get the BBL onto UK TV. Again, you know, we did the FIBA World Championships live on UK TV on G2. Um, and then the BBL turned us down to go on to. MKTV. You ever heard of MKTV? No. <laughs> there it goes. You could have been on Dave, but you went for Milton Keynes Television, which never even launched. Um, they never, you know, I never put myself forward for it. I wasn't applying for jobs. I wasn't going to get involved with the club, but my experience, my ex, my skill set, cried out to get involved with either the BBL or. Basketball England or Great Britain, not a sniff. Not a sniff. That was because they had the same old people involved, the same faces who wanted to be in control. They did not want change. And I would contend they probably do not want change now. You know, you want somebody that's got the guts to step aside. They are not going to do it. And when there was the, there was the thing with um, CSM Sports a few years ago, that yeah. was Channel 4 yeah. 10 years ago. And I was involved with that from, from the broadcast because I was working at Channel 4. And so, you know, they wanted to know what we would, what Channel 4 would do. And I remember John Ridgin, who's now the CEO of World Athletics, um, was a good friend of mine, was talking about, you know, they wanted to really take over basketball. And, um, you know, I, I remember being involved in that conversation. But the basketball side of it, the basketball world didn't want any part of that. They, because they, they are the incumbent. You're, you're asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. You know, and, 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 I will, and I will qualify my criticism by saying these are good people. They are well-meaning people. But why isn't any legacy from old players? I remember I bumped into, when we set up the Players Association, um, I bumped into Martin Clark, um, who... I can say he's the best British shooter I've ever seen. I, I, that, that year and a half I played with him, I just, I just was in awe. I was like, I've just got to set a screen for him. And I got the best point guard in the world in Alton Bird. I get my open, we're going to win. You know, and you got Al will get 300 rebounds a game. So I bumped into and Martin had, had retired, and he was like 29. He stopped playing because Kingston lost their money. And we all got pay cuts, and Martin said, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Um, and I bumped into him about a year later when we sent the players. I said, Mark, do you want to, would you ever consider coming back, getting involved with the Players Association, you know, getting involved with the boys? He said, I would never get involved with basketball ever again because the sport hates itself. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. That, And I kind of feel a bit like that now. I mean, I've, I said, I've been retired now, 50, 2004, 16 years, um, a couple of year, weeks ago, I retired. And not one call have I had from anybody for me to get involved with the sport here. And I don't think it's going to come. And I'm not, and, you know, I look at the people that are involved and it's players that have developed or former players who have developed programs themselves. The sport has not actively gone out and recruited. And I present you, Luol Deng. I present you. Uh, I saw on the, the, their podcast that they were doing, the, the lockdown ones, 
And they're saying that they, they actually said they tried to be involved. Pops tried to get involved and they didn't get an interview. Yeah. Are you kidding yeah. me? Come on. Yeah. So yeah. you're either saying that the players that we've played in the sport are stupid or there's a bit of a race element to it or you just don't want to give up your job. And it's probably a combination of all three. You know, it, it's one of those microaggressions that they're talking about now. It's it's not um, active or proactive racism. It's something that's like, hold up. The overall picture, each individual decision, you can justify. But the total picture doesn't look right. Yeah. And I give you every other country in the world. You look at what Tony Parker is doing in, um, in Asval, in Villaban. Players that have come back to their own country. And Luol's been invested in this country for many a year. And yet he's not sitting on a board in an advisory capacity. The BBL doesn't try to engage. Why? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Mm -hmm. Now, Drew Sullivan, nowhere to be seen. Kieran Achara, nowhere to be seen. These are players that the fan base, well, not for much longer, would know them. But in two years, they'll be like me, a distant memory. So who's going to be the next name? You know, that's what's missing here. Uh, so that's a long-winded way of saying I'd listen, but I don't, they're not, that call's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Sorry, Stan. Why haven't I asked you to get involved? You've been the, the passion of this sport for many a year, Sam. The beard's one reason, but besides <laughs> that... <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, it's funny, I... I often think that if what I want to do is have an impact on on British basketball, uh, you could argue that the the place I'd be best placed to do that would be from within the federation. But then I counter that in my own head by thinking I would be so restricted in terms of what I would want to do and want to be able to do that it wouldn't be worth me getting involved and I could actually have more impact independently. And that's part of the problem, right? It's like you need people that have the skill sets like yourself, you know, like the Steve Nelsons of the world. Uh, you need them people to be desperate to be involved, to want to be involved because they feel like they can really have an impact. And as long as the Federation kind of has this, I don't know what you'd want to call it, almost like a stigma, negative perception around it, um, you're going to struggle to attract the best people. And, you know, all as you know, all successful organizations are based around having great people. And if you don't have those people involved, then you're going to struggle. So. Here's one of my craziest ideas in my playing days. I said that what they should do is identify players coming to the end of their career and put them all through referee training courses. Because they always say the referees are terrible. So let's get all players to be turn us into referees. And when Nick Stoddard said to me, would you do it, Mike? I said, yeah, you darn right I would do it. I, would, I said, I'd be very happy to get my refereeing qualification. And then, look, it may be that you get everyone in the Players Association to qualify, level one qualification and if you get five referees out of that in the next three, four years, job done. Never done that. You know, so not, you know, developing the coaches and the coaching qualifications. I mean, I don't know how many um, BBL coaches have got that uh, FIBA Ultra UA license. I know one, yeah, I mean, whatever. The, I mean, how many people have got that? I mean, we should be trying to put candidate after candidate through that program. And we've got coaches that are got the skills to do it you look at what the veer brothers have done you know we it's this you know the, you know carl's a credible coach you mentioned nelly i mean steve nelson what a resource he would be for the sport it's not that we do not have the people here 
and you say you would want to do it independently. My question is to the sport. Why have you as a sport not tried to recruit these people? The talent, the ability is there. If they want to have a, a, a constructive social media plan and a constructive uh, marketing communications plan in terms of media products, you sit, I mean, you're hairy as hell, but you're sitting there. And you wouldn't charge the earth. And that's not to undermine the activities. You know, Bob Hope has been a wonderful servant of this sport for many a year. But where are the next generation coming through? It's not, you know, it, you, you'd have to unpick, the lay, take the, 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 the bonnet up and look at the deals that they've got done. I said, oh, that explains why that's happened. You know, I just, I don't know the details of the deals. You know, club, people are investing in some of the clubs. But, you know, if I was, why have we not had a coach the quality of Kevin Cadle or Nick Nurse in God knows how many years? You know, I, and I don't know how good the coaches they are now. Rob Paternostro, I always said when he played, would be a great coach. But there should be 20 like him. We should be these are the guys that we should be bringing through. You know, look at the players that that and showcase them because that's what these are names that I oh, remember you from your playing days. You know that that's what's missing. And that so the sport, it's not you, it's not me, it's not Kieran, it's not Drew, it's the sport. Why has the sport not recruited Drew Sullivan to become an ambassador of the BBL? Ask them that. Yeah. Right, we've gone one one hour forty. I think that's a, a perfect yeah, place know. place to leave it. Um, thank you so much, as always, uh, as insightful as ever. And uh, maybe in three years' time, we'll do a part three and uh, <laughs> and carry it oh, on. Oh God, no, because then I'll be like basketball three times. <laughs> Sam, always a pleasure. Um, and I, you know, I, you can see the passion is still there. So even though I have nothing to do with the sport, I think that it, I hope it the passion that I still have for the sport comes across. I only want what's best for the sport, but I'm not going to pull punches anymore. I don't need to. And I'd, I'd be the first person to buy a season ticket if we have a successful EuroLeague team. Perfect. Perfect place to leave it. Thanks so much. Cheers, Sam. Be good. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.